Welcome to the Stefan Levira Podcast. Hey guys, it's your host, Stefan Levira. Today, my guest is Per Byland. He is the Assistant Professor and Records Johnston Professor of Free Enterprise at Oklahoma State University at the OSU School of Entrepreneurship, and he also recently became a Fellow at the Mises Institute. A few remarks before we get started. This interview isn't as directly Bitcoin-focused, rather it's more focused on Austrian economics and related to the size of firms and what we might anticipate happens in a more sound money, free market world. The structure of companies now is such that they are bloated due to regulations keeping out competition and exaggerated economies of scale. This can have applications in the Bitcoin world, such as the way we think of centralization into large Bitcoin mining operations, large Bitcoin exchanges, wallets, hosted service providers, etc. So in this discussion, I wanted to speak on this theme. As we move to a free market capitalist Bitcoin standard world, what might the structure of the economy look like? So here's the interview. Hi, Per. Thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Yeah, Per, I was really impressed by some of the work you've been putting out on Twitter and just recently some of your articles as well. And I know also recently I saw that you became a fellow at the Mises Institute. So big congratulations on that, first of all. Thank you. That's, a, that's quite an honor to be a fellow at that great uh, Mises Institute. I've been with them quite a while, but, but I mean, th- I think this is a new category and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have been one of the few to get that honor. Yeah, excellent. And I've been quite impressed by some of your work recently where you were coming out and discussing the structure of firms and you know, it relates to the theory of firms and the size of different firms. And so one comment or one thread that I saw you talking on was this concept that in a true free market, we may see smaller companies than what we have today. So Per, could you please outline some of the thinking behind this and why should we anticipate this? Sure, there, there are several things. I mean, um, in, in my scientific work, I, I theorize on the firm and my dissertation was even on the theory of the firm, which is really uh, trying to put together an economic argument for why there would be integrated sort of islands of planning in the economy. Uh, and it's not obvious if you start with the economic theory that the price mechanism works well and, and competition is good and all this stuff, right? That it's, it doesn't make sense that there should be these big islands of production where everything is sort of centralized with central planning, even though it's several islands of this rather than the whole economy. I mean, why is that? That's, that's the original question that uh, Ronald Coase uh, asked back in 1937 already. Uh, so I've been looking at this a little bit, and I mean, it, it, the short answer is that regulations really have only one effect on the economy, and that is to stop entry. Uh, so it it it's, it creates barriers uh, for new entrants, and if we uh, want a functioning marketplace, uh, an efficient marketplace, uh, what we want is competition. Um, and as an Austrian, I realize that competition is not simply the number of firms available, but it, competition really is uh, the potential for new entrants undermining any incumbent's position. And, and what regu- regulations do is really restrict new entry, which means that the uh, incumbents can grow larger 
And since today's economy is heavily regulated, the conclusion is that firms overall are much bigger than they should be. Of course, there, there are many nuances to this argument too. Sure. Now, I like what you're saying there. And now many people within Bitcoin and elsewhere in the world, they speak in a sense, and now I don't necessarily agree, but they speak in this sense that, oh, we need better clarity before we can move into this space. We need better regulatory certainty and clarity. So how do you sort of contrast that against this idea that regulation restricts competition? Well, I mean... There's a whole literature on institutions too, and what we mean by institutions is really rules, formal rules or informal rules, or just uh, patterns of behavior in a sense, right? Uh, and what that means is that it's easier to predict how people are going to react. Um, uh, streets would be a, a good example of a formal regulation where you're only allowed to drive on the right side here, the left side for you. Uh, and since everybody drives on that same side, we can expect them to do so and we can drive faster and get where we want uh, sooner. So many of these institutions are provided by markets and by property owners and so forth. And some of the regulations that the government imposes on the economy are really co-opted by the government. And many, I think, they are sort of fooled by this thinking that all of the regulations that government imposes on the economy are intended to make it more efficient. And that's often the language used uh, when introducing these regulations too. So I can sort of understand where they're, where they're coming from, uh, thinking that uh, they, they need to need more clarity in terms of what, what is allowed and what is not so that they can predict better and they can position themselves better uh, with respect to what will happen in the future and so forth, right? Um, but what this really means is that, of course, if, if you restrict entry to one sector of the economy, so you have one monopolist, then they will be able to position themselves perfectly within that industry because there is no threat whatsoever. That is not uh, a good situation for consumers. It's a, it's a good situation for that one producer, potentially. Right? Those are two different issues, uh, and we need to be able to uh, keep two thoughts in our heads at the same time, uh, thinking about this. I mean, uh, some regularity and predictability is a good thing, uh, as in, say, the, the court system, for instance, that they should, uh, when they have a certain amount of evidence, they should, they should judge in one direction and not just at random. And that sort of thing. But that, that can be provided by the marketplace itself. Fantastic thoughts. I think it's it's around the difference. It sort of brings up that Hayekian concept of law versus legislation. And so in some cases, the market can provide a certain level of clarity. Or even in this example of, let's say, we had a market-driven law. Well, and you contrast that with, say, government-driven law. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it's legislated, then obviously if it's imposed from above, it is going to favor some interests over others, right? <laughs> if it sort of bubbles up from below, then it's going to be some form of consensus. And we're also going to get only those rules where we can get sufficient agreement. Whereas in, in position of those rules from above, you basically just need someone able to impose them and then you get them. And that, that has nothing to do with uh, actually being in line with people's values and interests. It just means that it's in line with that one 
person or that one interest imposing those rules. Right. And if we have better rules, and as you're saying, the competition is not simply the number of firms available, what are some ways by which we can judge that we do have higher quality competition? Well, that, that's, that's sort of the, the problem uh, in a sense, because measurement of competition, what I mentioned before is that, well, real competition is really the threat of an entrant. So in a sense, I think it was Rothbard who asked at some point how many firms are necessary for there to be a competitive marketplace. And the answer is one. Um, even if this is an, a monopolist, uh, it's still a competitive uh, market, a competitive market industry um, if there are no artificial barriers to entry. Because that means if there's still only one a firm that is not a problem if that firm is so efficient and so it produces so so low cost that no one else can compete with them then it's still uh, to the benefit of consumers and that's that's what the the market economy is trying to do right to satisfy the wants of consumers so it's, it's not a problem that you have one producer it's, it's a problem that you have one producer that is not actually efficient so that they're uh, producing at a cost that is much higher uh, than uh, than what the cost should be, so that they're basically exploiting the situation and they're they're being inefficient producers. Really, that's what we're talking about. I mean, that's a problem. So, Per, that brings me to that idea of how do we move into a world where we might actually have more smaller businesses that are still multinational, international. Well, the the obvious answer uh, would be to get rid of regulation um, any type of privilege uh, which really is a restriction of the the, th the potential threats to your business um, if we get rid of all those then we would get in a sense the efficient number of businesses using whatever uh, production technology they consider best Right, in each industry. Uh, how many businesses does that mean that we will get? I have no clue and I don't, I don't think we can say uh, based on theory how many there should be. It depends on what they do and how they do things. Um, so it might, I mean, in one uh, extreme, it could be a, an economy where you have highly cost-efficient producers, but only one in each industry, only one producer of each good. And that could still be a market situation and a fully competitive situation if there are no barriers to entry. So it's not really, it, we can't really say that there should be a whole lot of firms or there should be even worse, 1,200 firms in each industry or whatever. Um, the only thing we can say is that it, it will be to speaking to consumers' interests as far as possible if there are no artificial barriers to entry. So in that sense, there should be no regulations whatsoever. And that includes um, intellectual property rights and things like that too. Oh, agreed, agreed. And so in such a world, <clears throat> what sort of different structures might we see? Uh, one example I was thinking is we might see more self-employed people versus salary workers. Indeed. I mean, the, one of the reasons people don't do more of this so-called gig economy today is it's not technological reasons, really. It's, 
is that what, what is required very often is a formal employment. And here in the US, for instance, if, if you don't work full time, uh, def defined in, in this, this case as 35 hours a week for an employer, uh, you can't get tax subsidized uh, healthcare insurance, which of course is super expensive in this country to begin with, but <clears throat> uh, you don't want to work 30 hours for someone else. And you also don't want to start your own business if you think that you can make enough to have an okay life, but you can't afford that health, health insurance, right? Uh, and many other benefits are, are based on uh, basically privileges to employers, uh, tax benefits and so forth. Uh, so many people, I think, would choose to work fewer hours. Uh, they might work a whole lot more with charities and things like that uh, if they didn't pay taxes, if there were no regulations, if they weren't um, dependent on an employment per se. Uh, I think in terms of the, the market structure overall, we would see a whole lot more local and differentiated uh, production simply because people's what people want from producers is very varied. Um, many people want, I mean, by local, it's, it's a big thing in, in say vegetables and things like that. Um, but it's also important for people in many other things to, to support their local contractor and their local whatnot. Um, and they, they are, are more, willing to buy for from a local seller of goods than they are to buy from someone who's just sort of repackaging stuff from china or something like that um so that's part of it the other part is simply that that um, transportation is heavily subsidized at least indirectly in the world as it is today i mean we generally have free roads on and by free i mean tax uh, payer subsidized right uh, and and since it's not pay for use, but it's it's simply pay because of income or because of ownership of a car or whatever it is, uh, you're really subsidizing those who use roads very heavily. Um, so it, in a sense, relatively speaking, it 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 pays to use the roads as much as possible, which is partly why we have congestion in bigger cities, but it's also why we see so many trucks on the roads. Um, and since we have this uh, subsidy, subsidy of transportation, it makes sense to have one big ass factory somewhere producing tons of goods and then transport them very far distances. And I think this has really caused a, a problem in the economy overall that, that production itself, since, since we have this implicit subsidy of transportation, most innovation and most thinking about protect production techniques and production technology is about using uh, the economies of scale as much as possible. In other words, the technologies used in production today are optimized for a situation where economies of scale should be used as much as possible rather than differentiation. So there's a, in a sense, a, a government subsidy of commodification of goods, whereas we would probably see local variety in a much greater extent. We could see an economy where production is really targeting small scale 
And you can do that efficiently too. It's just a different technology. And today it does not make any sense to, to uh, invest in research and development for small scale production for the simple reason that large scale production is subs subsidized through transportation and through tax deductions and special subsidies for for big plants with plenty of employees and things like that, right? I mean, if you have a big company, it's not hard to get the government to to give you a lot of uh, special deals um, to support your business, because otherwise you will you will fire a lot of people, and politicians don't like that. So, I mean, Amazon's HQ two in the U.S. here is a good example where they basically. Uh, had a call for proposals from local governments saying, okay, we want, we, we're going to establish a second headquarters somewhere. What can you offer us on, at taxpayers' expense? And then they let cities uh, bid over each other, basically, with taxpayer money and infrastructure uh, investments and things like that. So, I mean, of, of course you don't start a local, small-scale firm or invest in uh, researching uh, small-scale uh, production technologies if you have this type of deal offered to big players but not to smaller players yeah fantastic insight I think this point around the transport cost subsidies not very well appreciated and not well understood so then I think that brings me to the next idea which is can we move towards this sort of structure as in smaller businesses in a more free market even if governments do not reduce regulation uh, through things like, say, jurisdictional shopping and trying to, you know, arbitrage of a sort towards favorable jurisdictions? Or do you think really that government regulation acts as the blocker for us? Well, it's, it's a blocker in a threshold sense, I, I suppose. I mean, technology can be used, and it's, it's used by governments too, but technology is very often more, more effectively and more efficiently used uh, by private interests. Um, and I think there are, uh, the type of institutional competition that you mentioned, I mean, the shopping for, for rules and legislations within a country or basically saying that we will move to the other country if, if they change their rules or politicians uh, stepping ahead and saying, "Hey, uh, if you come here, we will we will lower taxes." Uh, I think a, a famous uh, U.S. example is Kansas City, uh, which is on the border between Missouri and Kansas, the states, where both states have tried to attract businesses, and every time they lower the taxes, the businesses just move to the other side of town uh, to save <laughs> on on taxes. And I mean, in a, it, of course, that that works. Um, that's not a, a, it's not a big problem for the businesses and the businesses will of course follow whatever incentives they have to lower their costs and, and taxes, that's a, that's a huge cost, right? Uh, I think what, what we're going to see a whole lot more though is um, private businesses doing what Uber has been doing, which is basically create new categories. So uh, when, uh, when le legislation is a wet blanket on a type of industry and is really stifling competition and innovation, such as in the taxi industry, where 
say New York City, they have the medallion system where there are only a certain number of medallions and only if you have a medallion can you have a taxi, uh, that sort of thing. So there's really no competition because the number of medallions is so much lower than the markets for uh, provision of, of uh, taxi cabs would be. Uh, Uber understood that they couldn't take on taxi businesses the way taxi businesses were doing business in that regulated space because uh, then they would have to follow those regulations so they would have to start a call center they would have to buy a whole fleet of cars they would have to hire the uh, drivers and all this stuff right which just means okay well if you're doing something exactly the way the incumbents are doing it you might be a little bit marginally uh, more cost efficient because you're new and you're trying different ways but the scope or the, the space available for innovation is not all that great. So what they did was simply say, hey, wait a minute, there's a technology uh, that allows us to do something completely different, uh, simply connect willing drivers with people who want to get transportation from A to B. So they didn't start a taxi business. They're, of course, competing with taxi in the sense that they're competing for people wanting to go to, from A to B. Um, but they didn't start a taxi business and they argued and they still argue that they are not a taxi business, they're a ride-sharing service, right? Which means that the regulations that apply to taxi may not apply to Uber. And of course, you see a lot of pushback from government agencies and things like that trying to claim that, that uh, Oh, it's it is still a taxi business, so they're changing the definitions, or they're they're sort of pushing the boundaries of of what a taxi business is in in their own legal uh, definitions and things like that. Uh, I think California has ruled that well, if you're driving for Uber, you're really an employee. So they basically changed uh, the definition of what an employee is. Um, other other places like Columbia, Missouri, I, I lived there. Uh, for several years, what they did was simply saying that, well, you're not allowed to uh, to operate in the city because it's not a regulated space. And before we uh, decide whether you're a taxi business or something else, and if you're something else, that we regulate that business space, you're not allowed to operate at all. Which of course is is a very strange way of looking at it. It's basically saying that unless you you are approved by a government, you cannot do anything at all. Which is not how we usually think of uh, sort of America as sort of the mecca of capitalism and whatnot, right? <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But governments governments very very often do this. I mean, they they, they see that their power is undermined because the categories that they have created, that this space that used to be taxi companies, and they were all run in a certain way because that's the only way they had figured out. And that was probably an efficient way back then. Uh, so they regulated them. And then you have this uh, new entrant using different technology and a different idea altogether. And they don't fit in that category. Then, of course, governments panic because they can't, they don't regulate and they can't control and they can't tax properly and all this stuff. 
So their first reaction, of course, is to stop everything, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is crazy. But I, it, Uber has also managed to uh, get rid of a lot of regulation because, of course, of course, incumbent taxi businesses they are not happy with Uber uh, competing with them for the same customers, but from a different regula- regulation-wise, a different type of market, right? And whether it's less regulation or it's just different regulation, that you can still use that to your benefit, right? So they want an even playing field and all all these nonsense that they're claiming, right? Which has often led to uh, local and regional governments deregulating uh, the taxi business a little bit to make it easier for taxi businesses to compete with Uber. And I think this type of sort of institutional evasion is a a very interesting way of uh, deregulating the economy. Because it it really means that you have entrepreneurs finding a new market space where they can compete with an old and existing market space, but in a very different way. And they're using the lack of regulation to their benefit, to their advantage. Right. And so it's very much a phenomenon of fitting a square peg in a circular hole. If you're trying to, government is trying to apply this box or this bucket or this category uh, and then try to sort of force you force it to be one certain way i think another kind of common area is financial services so then there's a lot there's a lot of regulation you know large banks and financial institutions they have armies of compliance and risk staff that smaller banks and upstart competitors can't necessarily uh, have do you have any thoughts in how in terms of how the regulations there drive centralization into larger banks and larger financial institutions well, I don't know the the regulations specifically, but I mean it works the same way there. I know it's heavily, heavily regulated, just like healthcare um, and higher ed too, uh, which means you're going to get bigger and bigger players. And um, I mean, how, how do you gain ground in a heavily regulated industry? Well, you merge with someone else, or you you buy them up basically. So it's mergers and acquisitions. That's that's how you how you improve the business, <clears throat> and that's how how many incumbents try to um, become leaner in a sense by buying a, a business that looks like they have synergies uh, so that they can cut cut down a bit on on the number of, of people employed and maybe offer whatever services they already offered but use that department for to cover more uh, customers at once I mean, that's the, the only thing you can do, really. There's there's no incentive for innovation because regulation, it doesn't only stop new entrants into your business space. It also means that any regu- any innovation could fall on the outside of what, what is uh, permitted, which means, sure. which means it just means that the, the space for available for research and development and trying new things, it's not really there, right? I mean, banking yeah, and right. finance is a very special industry too, because I mean, they basically have the right given to them from the Federal Reserve or any central bank in whatever country you're in to create new money. So it's it's a it's a very strange uh, type of industry. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can actually call banking a, a, 
a market phenomenon the way it is today. Oh, interesting. So you think it's, I mean, and that really makes sense, really. It's kind of more driven by government regulations. Okay, so then imagine we lived under a more sound or hard money standard. Do you have any thoughts on how, you know, what that transition to an economy with smaller companies might look like or how long that might take? I don't think it would necessarily take all that long. I mean, it's a, as soon as the subsidies uh, go away, I mean, then the, the true cost of uh, not, not, not the economies of scale, because the economies of scale will still be there, but the exaggerated economies of scale, which means there are diseconomies of scale after a certain point, right, where you produce too much and then you have to transport too far away from, from the plant. Uh, those are diseconomies of scale. As soon as those costs become uh, obvious, and those players have to cover those costs. I mean, businesses are really, really good at responding to costs because <laughs> their whole survival yeah. really depends on covering their costs, right? Because otherwise they're going to suffer losses. So as, exactly. soon as, as soon as those subsidies are gone, I mean, just, just introduce, say, pay-per-use for, for roads and, and uh, whatnot else, you will rather immediately see that, whoops, uh, prices for transportation are going to go up because usually a plant does not have its own uh, logistics network, right? They use something else. And all those truckers, uh, trucking companies, they're going to raise their prices to cover the costs. Um, that means a lot of these uh, producers are going to consider options. They're going to consider rail. They're going to consider air. They're going to consider... What are, what other options there might be, and the cost is still going to go up. I mean, then they they are forced to raise their prices, and that that might be raising them too far. So, or they might be at the wrong end of of the demand curve. So that raising the price means that they're actually losing revenue quite a bit. Um, right, and that really opens it up for any entrepreneur in. A local market to say hey we're, let's offer something that people here say in Tulsa Oklahoma where I live people here they they really fancy I don't know slippers produced in China but not at this high price rather they would like slippers with that look in a certain way or they're more cowboy or something maybe that's the case but that was not the case with really cheap plastic uh, slippers from China. But since the price of those slippers went up, there's an opportunity for a local producer. And I mean, that's going to happen very quickly, I think, this this type of transition. It's going to mean, mean a lot of losses for a lot of those uh, uh, large-scale producers too, of course. Right, right. And I think the one challenge that I perceive, and, and you know, we, we, we all face this is free market, capitalist, libertarian types, we have to try to articulate why exactly some of these companies are unnaturally large relative to what would exist in a truly free market. So as you were saying, the exaggerated economies of scale. Now, if you're trying to explain that and articulate that to somebody, what 
might some potential indicators of unnecessarily large companies be? So could it be that some of these companies you can tell because they've got really poor customer service and they just still survive anyway? Or could it be that maybe they've got poor reviews and work-life balance of employees or any, anything else? Well, I mean, probably all of those. Um, I mean, poor customer service, that's usually a government business uh, or it's a, a sort of public utility type of uh, uh, local monopoly like cable TV in the US, for instance, or electricity, power, uh, gas, things like that, right? They, they usually have pretty, pretty horrible customer service because you only have one place to go anyway. Um, I think another metric would probably be bloated uh, administration or bureaucracy. So you would, you would have way more levels of decision-making within the firms uh, than would otherwise be the case. I mean, I, in a sense, they, they would be just overall bigger than, <laughs> than they would otherwise have been. And with bigness comes bureaucracy. So they really run not like entrepreneurial businesses uh, trying to produce value for consumers. Instead, they all have already established that they're producing this type of commodity, whatever it is. And then the whole business is targeted towards controlling production and just pushing out more of this, uh, this commodity or, or investing in, uh, in the politicians. I mean, that's a probably good measure too. Uh, whatever, whatever business is, is, well, over here it's called campaign donations, right? Um, when you, you buy the services of a politician. Yeah, so I think I think I like the insight you were giving there around bureaucracy as a potential indicator of companies that have just grown unnecessarily large, and the, the that sort of company might not exist in a truly free market, or at least it might not be as big as it currently is. Well, it it, it would anyway it would would it create a whole lot of value. I mean, the the way I teach this, and I think it's true too. <laughs> so I don't I don't just teach bullshit. Um, but the, the way you start a business is, is not uh, thinking about cutting costs, really. Um, what, what you do is you figure out a customer segment where you can produce something that they, this specific type of customer, considers extremely valuable. And then you charge a price that is much, much lower than this value that consu those consumers uh, think that your good or service has. And then your job is really to make sure that you can produce this good at a cost that is lower than the price that they're charging, right? Um, for, for these businesses that are way too large, what they're doing is just pumping out these goods and all they see is the price of the cost and they're trying to minimize the cost rather than uh, maximize the value for the consumer, right? The, the way you, uh, you uh, outcompete others it's not really uh, to do it head on producing the same commodity at a slightly lower price. The way to do it is really diversification, right? And, dif and, and well, sorry, differentiation. To produce something that is tweaked towards a specific uh, customer segment where you provide them with such immense value that they're unless you're an idiot and you're charging way too much for it, they're going to choose your product every day of the week. So 
they, they are so much better off every time they buy your product that they're going to do that no matter what. So it basically sells itself. And then you keep your production costs lower than that. And of course, what that means is that you can target a pretty narrow customer segment and provide them with a lot of value. And then your competitor is, is targeting a, a customer segment that is adjacent to yours or that is close to, but not exactly the same, right? Then you can then uh, potentially expand into the next one and compete in sort of secondary markets, but you already have your own market. I mean, you, you don't see that in, in the, those businesses that are way too big because the only way they can cut costs is to cut uh, in differentiation, right? To increase volume of a very standardized product. Yeah, I like the insight around really thinking of it like you just want to give your customers extreme value rather than sort of trying to play this game of just trying to slightly undercut the competition on a cost point of view. Yes, and I, I think a lot of even small-time entrepreneurs, they completely miss that point, which is very sad. I mean, I, I have a, I experienced this uh, rather recently here when I had to use a uh, plumber and the, the plumber showed up and he didn't have the right tools to do what I asked him to do. So he went back home and it took him like 90 minutes to go back home and get the tools and come back. And he charged me for that time. That time, of course, contributed absolutely zero to the value I got from the services. Right? He did not think of the value he was contributing to his customer. He was thinking just about charging for the time. And th this is a bureaucratic business, not an entrepreneurial business that does this, even though he was probably self-employed, but plumbers are heavily regulated. So they get to overcharge for their services and there's a limited supply of plumbers because you need to be licensed by the state and all this crap. So of course he could charge me for his time because I needed that fixed no matter what, because I had flooding and everything. So I needed someone to fix it right away. And to me then, well, okay, I guess I will have to pay him for those 90 minutes driving. Or maybe he took a nap or something too. I don't know. I mean, there's no way I can tell, right? But I know that he wasn't working on fixing the problem. Had he instead focused on providing value to me, he would say that, okay, well, I can fix it right away for, for this amount of money. Is that okay for you? Or, or would that be an appropriate price? Can we agree on this? And then no matter how, how much time it takes, uh, he would still charge that amount. I mean, because th then you have established that whatever you're charging is lower than the value to the customer. So, so you are providing value, and which is the whole point of a business, right? And that, that way you can you get a good reputation and you probably get more customers and so forth. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, um, I just want to change gears now. There is one other topic that I've seen you comment on, and I think it's a very confused term or understanding. It's around this concept of scarcity and post-scarcity, right? So I've seen you comment um, previously that some people mistake you know, what the understanding, what is scarcity, and they think, oh, well, we're going to be in this sort of post-scarcity world. So can you maybe outline where they're going wrong in that thinking? Sure. I think it's a, a difference of, between the colloquial use of the terms and how they're used in actual economic theorizing. And then you have these, a lot of people using the colloquial meaning of these terms 
to produce new theory. And very often in this case, it's because it, it fits their political view very well. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> scarcity, I mean, for, for an economist, scarcity means simply that there is a limitation. There's a choice to be made. You have to choose whether to use it or with how much to use of it, because there is always a trade-off. That's what scarcity means for an economist. Uh, so it can mean anything from simple, simply that, well, I'm in this space, which means you can't be in this space at the same time. So there's a scarcity of space and time. I do this now, so I can't do something else at the same time. I have to do it later. Well, there's a trade-off there. So um, there, there's a scarcity of, of time too. And of course, this goes for any type of resource. It can be used for something else or it can be saved for the future. And you have all these trade-offs all the all the time going on in the economy where scarcity uh, colloquially really means that oh we have almost nothing left of this so when we say time is scarce it usually means that we're in an extreme urgency or extreme rush right now right it, it doesn't mean that we are going to die in 50 years which means that we have to make good choices that's not what scarce scarcity of time means so taking this colloquial meaning People think that, well, we, we have so much now and we're so well off that we, we can't afford making poor choices. Uh, we can afford taking from the rich, giving to the poor, even if that means we don't get more growth or whatever it is. Um, and that's usually how people view this, both the post-scarcity society that we live in today because they think we're so rich. Um, so we can afford to make poor choices. That's, that's basically what they're saying. And that always seems to fit very well with uh, those who want a huge government and very few private businesses and, <laughs> and all of these things. Um, so it's, it's an, in a sense, a, a theory formulated uh, based on a political agenda rather than anything else. Uh, but it's also used uh, as strangely an argument against sound economics thinking basically what they're saying is that we don't need to make trade-offs at all because we have so much exactly and the i think that one of the key insights is just around the scarcity of time even if we have a massive abundance of things we still are scarce in terms of how much time you know you and i can go and spend doing the things that we love to do and we have to make necessarily we must make trade-offs in that yeah exactly and i mean it's we we are going to die someday and we want to make as much as possible of the time we have here on earth and and that's a scarcity in sense because that means we have to make choices all the time even if we had enormous riches i mean if, if you think about it too if you if you read some historical documents and you read uh, what thinkers throughout time had have said, then it, it, you will notice that all of them have really, or at least at any point in time, you have several people claiming that this is the height of civilization. We can go no farther, or we don't want to go any further, because we are happy already, right? <laughs> so we're at this advanced stage right now that we don't have to move on. We, we can just stop everything the way it is right now. And I mean, imagine if people had had believed that and had actually stopped in 1850. 
how many of us would actually be alive today if we had stopped back then? Well, we wouldn't have any vaccines or, or antibiotics and things like that. And we, so mo most of us would die way earlier than we actually will. And many of us would probably die in childbirth and, and, and all of these things. So they're, they're missing the point saying that we are rich now doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to get even richer because richer is really about the well-being um, in general, which means leading long, happy, healthy lives. I, I don't see that as a downside of, of growth at all. Yeah, fantastic insights there, Per. Uh, look, I think they're the key things I was looking to discuss today. I thought um, you've brought some really great insights and they're very applicable for uh, people who want to an analyze the world that we live in today and especially you know if you're into bitcoin and you want to look at the centralization of large companies that, and you know maybe what's driving that large centralization can actually be in these cases regulations and various subsidies as you mentioned so say this transport subsidy. right i think they very often focus on uh, on the impact of technology right that that with with uh, blockchain technology say that you, you can you can control the information flows and you can trust information so much more than you, you could prior to blockchain. And therefore, businesses can be smaller. And I think that that is true in a sense, but the reason businesses are large today is not really control of information. It's in response to uh, regulation. So they're bloated. That's what we're talking about. It's, it's not that they're, they are uh, sized uh, in order to be efficient for the production that they're doing, instead they they are bloated because they are protected. Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it. I think, uh, Per, maybe you can just tell the uh, the listeners where they can find you. Say on your Twitter, your website, your books, your articles. Sure. So uh, I tweet quite a bit. Uh, I tend to tweet tweet uh, long. What's it called? Tweet storms, right? And and strangely, when I have really long ones, those are the most popular ones. <laughs> I don't know how, how that works because Twitter is supposed to be very short messages, right? But when I have tweet storms, so I say 25, 30 tweets, uh, those are the most popular tweets. Uh, so so uh, your listeners can find me at Per Byland. Uh, that's P-E-R-B-Y-L-U-N-D. Uh, and my website is uh, simply my name.com. So P-E-R-B-Y-L-U-N-D.com. Um, I have two books from 2016, uh, one that's called The Seen, The Unseen, and The Unrealized, uh, in which I, as, as you can probably tell from the, the title, uh, it plays off of Frederick Bastiat's The Seen and The Unseen, but it adds uh, The Unrealized, which is really a new dimension looking at the opportunities that simply do not materialize in a regulated world, and I use that as an argument against regulation. Um, it's intended as a sort of uh, textbook for advanced uh, undergraduates or, or an intellectually intelligent uh, public. Uh, so it's, it's, it provides an introduction to how a market economy actually works and then introduces regulations. And so you, you can sort of follow step by step what happens when you introduce regulations in a, in a, in a working marketplace. And then my other book is sort of my theory uh, contribution where I discuss the theory of economic growth in a sense 
where um, Adam Smith already talked about division of labor, how that uh, makes us so much more productive. Uh, and he said that the limit of division, the division of labor is the extent of the market, which is really the uh, how many you can reach through the price system, you can say. Um, what I argue in this book is that in order for the market to become more efficient, it's not enough to become better and better within this extent of the market, but to expand the extent. And that's what is real economic growth, because the economy itself becomes able to produce so much more uh, value. And what I do is to produce a theory for how the market overcomes this this limitation, uh, which I call the specialization deadlock. So it's it's an interesting. I think it's an interesting theory. Um, it's definitely more Austrian theory than than the other book, which is uh, more to the libertarian uh, arguments. Yeah, understood. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, also, Per, do you Per, do you have any uh, anything upcoming that the listeners should look out for? That's a good question. Uh, I have plenty of research. Uh, which uh, is probably going to be behind paywalls and be ridiculously expensive to read and probably boring as well. Um, I am working on several book projects, but they're sort of long-term. So there's one a short book on entrepreneurship that I am, I've, I've sort of contracted, but not actually gotten started with. Uh, but I hope to get that published when within a, year or two uh, and I'm, I'm also working on get putting together a sort of more uh, popular style book on what economic growth actually is because that seems to be some uh, uh, sort of type of economic thinking where most people go wrong so I'm, I'm thinking of doing something like that too exactly when that's going to happen I'm not sure so for now I mean it's my my regular columns at Entrepreneur Magazine, where I sort of provide simple insights. It's, they're not very deep, but uh, it's, it's a commentary basically from summarizing how, how to run a business properly. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Per. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Per. You guys can find the show notes on my website, stefanlibero.com. Go to the episodes page. This one will be episode 38. Let me know what you think of this episode by finding me on Twitter. My handle is at Stefan Levera. If you want to support the show, you can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Stefan Levera. Thanks for listening, and that's it from me. Speak to you next time.